Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And today we're going to cover a little bit of India's history. Uh, We don't really talk about India enough quite frankly, so it's time. And this is an incident that some people have probably heard of, but many have also not. Uh, one of the lectures that I watched in preparing this particular episode's notes mentioned that 50 years ago, most people that you asked on the street would know about this incident, but that today that number is really a great deal smaller. And I will mention that I had not heard of it uh, before I started researching it, but Tracy had. So in our sample set of two, there's only a 50% knowledge rate. So Well, well in my knowledge of it, came from a, a non-history class source and not even a history, historically accurate source, uh, which is that the very first job I ever had, I worked as a summer employee at a finance office at the place that my mom worked at. Mm-hmm. And they had a file room <laughs> that the uh, the finance manager referred to as the black hole of Calcutta. And it was extremely hot and extremely crowded and extremely dirty. Uh, and I gleaned from all of that, that the dark hole of, or the black hole of Calcutta was a dark, dirty, hot, oppressive, terrible place. But I did not know anything else specifically about it. So the black hole of Calcutta actually refers to two things, or rather the same thing, but in two different ways. So first, it was, in fact, a a small prison cell, like a kind of like the, the cell you would put, um, you know, people that were intoxicated in overnight in old timey <laughs> westerns. Like it was a small little cell. Um, and that was in Fort William, which was in Calcutta. And we're going to talk a little bit about Fort William. But second, it also refers to this specific incident that is quite horrific and happened there in that cell in the mid-1700s. I feel like I should explain why I just laughed in the background, which is that I grew up in North Carolina where the Andy Griffith show is on TV at all, yeah. at all times. Uh, and there is a, a, I mean, in hindsight, it's very sad. It, it's an alcoholic named Otis who locks himself up in the jail. And, and the image of that made me chuckle while you were talking. Exactly. That's kind of what I think of, too. Like, this was uh, roughly akin to, like, the pokey in the Andy Griffith show. Like, it was intended to be, like, a small misdemeanor situation. And we'll talk about that some more as we go on. But first, we're going to kind of set the political scene that was going on in India at the time. In the late 1600s and early 1700s, it was really a time of rising tensions in India. The Mughal Empire was losing its power and had decentralized Provincial governors, known as Nawabs, shared the power that was previously held by the Mughal dynasty. And British commercial efforts had set up a base of trade operations in Calcutta, and they had erected a fort, Fort William, to safeguard these interests. The East India Company had been slowly building its power base there over the years, since the late 1600s, and it had reached a point where it basically controlled all of the commerce in the city. In fact, Calcutta is the anglicized version of the city's name, which was the official name until 2001. At that point, the Indian government renamed the city Kolkata to more closely reflect the Bengali pronunciation. So while we're going to leave the title of the episode with the anglicized name to reflect the way that this story is known, Kolkata is the more accurate name for the city. Yeah, so going forward, we'll use the more accurate name, but I... I Doing a quick search online using the Kolkata spelling mm-hmm. 
it usually just redirects you back to Calcutta if it finds things. So right. we're, that's why we're leaving the episode name that way. Well, and that's a balance that you and I kind of have to strike sometimes between an episode that people can identify from the name and know what it's about. Correct. <laughs> Enough to want to actually listen to it and then find out the more accurate story. Right. And also for searchability online, it's, you know, we'll we'll tag it with both of the ways so that people can easily find it. But we're just you got to fall in line with some of these historical ones. So uh, first, we're going to talk about two men in particular who ended up being really pivotal players in this event. And the first is Siraj al-Dawla, who was the Nawab of Bengal, having succeeded his grandfather in the position in 1756. And Siraj al-Dawla was born somewhere between 1729 and 1733, depending on which source you look at. But basically, he was in his mid-20s when he gained power and was in the midst of this. John Z. Holwell was born in Dublin in 1711. He was a surgeon by trade, and he took a position as a surgeon's mate on a ship that was bound for Kolkata in 1732. He was eventually hired as a surgeon major for the East India Company, and he settled in Kolkata in 1736. So in the middle of the 18th century, the East India Company had a garrison in Fort William to defend the city and British interests there. And there had been repeated instructions throughout the years from the parent company to those running things in Kolkata to ensure that the port and the company holdings were always protected and, quote, to make your fortifications strong enough to discourage or sustain any attempts of the Moors, but in as private a manner as you can. The East India Company had already been fortifying Fort William for some time by the summer of 1756, which incensed the Bengal Noab. It had further stepped up these efforts in the anticipation of a conflict with France, which eventually manifested as the Seven Years' War. Siraj al-Dawla was, to put it mildly, quite displeased with this increased defensive effort on the part of the British. So the Nawab, believing that all this fortification was really a direct challenge to his power, uh, sent an order to the British to cease with this fortification project. And no response was given to this order. The British didn't even acknowledge that they had ever gotten it, and the work on the fort continued. They were both shoring up the physical fort and bringing in more troops. And so Siraj al-Dawla, feeling that he had no other choice, attacked Kolkata. His forces included between 30,000 and 50,000 men, along with 500 elephants and 50 cannons. Their approach was really systematic and moved first through the outlying areas of the city, working their way slowly inward. This attack began on June 16th, 1756. As the army of the Nawab approached the fort, the governor, Roger Drake, his staff, and many other British residents of the fort fled. They made their way to the harbor and to awaiting ships. And this left behind a number of women and children, about 170 to 180 soldiers, which were commanded by John Zephaniah Holwell, John Z. Holwell that we talked about earlier. And Drake was later dismissed by the company after this whole incident. Uh, he was charged with incompetence and let go. As Siraj al-Dawla advanced, the people in Fort William grew increasingly aware of the very poor odds that they were facing. On the evening of June 18th, it was decided that all European women still remaining should be escorted to boats on the river. And after that, Holwell, uh, having been left there alone, rallied what men he could, even those who had not been in the military, to prepare to defend themselves and those left behind by Roger Drake. 
And he ended up with approximately 500 people in total. Only half of those were Europeans. The other half was made up of Armenians, Indo-Portuguese, and Indians. When Siraj Aldala and his men reached Fort William on the morning of June 20th, Holwell and his meager crew really did not have much of a chance. Their morale was extremely poor. There had been talk of retreating to the harbor and taking flight in ships, although all the boats were gone by this time. Some of the remaining makeshift military simply ran. In addition to being ridiculously outnumbered, their defenses at Fort William were virtually non-existent. So they had two mortars at the fort, but they were useless because all of the powder had gotten wet. This is also a very humid area, and it hadn't really been cared for and stored properly. And the grape shot that they had on hand had also been damaged and degraded in storage. This is all sort of ironic when you consider that part of what had incensed the Bengal Nawab was the fact that Fort William was building up its defenses. Apparently, they were not doing a very good job of that on the weapons front. But in any case, Holwell stood as commander of the fort's garrison, and that was simply by being one of the highest-ranking British men left there. He was kind of nominated into that position by the people that were left behind. He had zero military experience. Recall that he was, in fact, a surgeon. And the men under him, who were actually soldiers and not civilian volunteers, basically mutinied. They knew that Holwell was not capable of handling them or the situation, and many of them deserted. So in the end, Holwell ended up with about 150 men. So Holwell ended up surrendering within hours after the few available firearms had exhausted the small ammunition supply that was on hand. He believed that he and those with him would be treated honorably. Holwell was brought before Siraj, who expressed his disdain for the European fortifications at Fort William. The non-Europeans who had stood along with Holwell were released. And Holwell and all the other European captives were left with Siraj's guards. Some of the captives were apparently intoxicated. In that whole mutiny thing, apparently there was a break-in to some liquor supplies. And these intoxicated people got a little aggressive with the guards. They were just a little difficult to handle. And at some stage of these kind of tense interactions, the guards became really frustrated to the point that someone insisted that these captives absolutely had to be confined. That night, around 8 p.m., Holwell, his men, several of whom were wounded, and somewhere between one and five women, accounts really vary on exactly how many, were locked up in a cell that was nicknamed the Black Hole. And before we get to the details of uh, the night that these prisoners spent in the Black Hole, we're going to pause before it gets, because it gets kind of dark here coming up, so we're going to pause now for a word from one of the great sponsors that keeps us going. So... The black hole, the cell itself, was simply a room. It was approximately 18 feet, that's 5.5 meters long, and about 14 feet 10 inches, or roughly, very roughly, 4 meters wide. And the size of the actual cell varies somewhat in terms of whose description you're reading. And the building was actually demolished in 1818, so verification on this one is a lost cause. It was a recessed cell into the ground. Um, there were two small barred windows in the black hole. And now this space, as we mentioned earlier, was built in the fort as a sort of lockup for minor offenses. And it certainly was not intended to hold the number of people that were shut into it that night. To compound the horror of the situation, the weather at this time was swelteringly hot. It's not uncommon for temperatures in Kolkata in June to reach the high 90s Fahrenheit, which is the mid to high 30s Celsius. 
Yes. And again, this is one of those things where we only have historical accounts, but there are several people that say that it reached record, some close to record highs this particular year. So even surpassing those numbers. And the people that were crammed into the black hole together were climbing over each other for access to the windows and a chance at just getting a breath of fresh-ish air. And they were also left minimal water for the night, so they fought over the meager supply that they had. The prisoners called to the guards for assistance or for mercy, but their pleas were really met with laughter. They tried to bribe the guards, but to no avail. Holwell likely survived because he was often near the windows, trying to reason with the guards for some kind of assistance. And there was actually part of Holwell's description of this event uh, where he talks about one guard that did seem almost sympathetic to their plight. And it seemed like this ray of hope. And this particular guard was offered money to shift some of the prisoners uh, from the cell in the black hole to like any other place that they could be confined. And the guard left and it seemed like he was going to take some action. But then he returned after a little while and said that the Nawab was sleeping and that no one was allowed to wake him to ask if moving the prisoners would be acceptable. Allegedly, one of the prisoners drank the sweat rolling off of Holwell and into his sleeves. Holwell said that he attempted to drink his own urine in desperation, but could not handle the taste. Uh, when another guard brought a small amount of water, like a, I think the account is that there were two small skins of water for the group because these people were all sweating. The air was getting heavy with just moisture and they were just getting super dehydrated. But a fight ensued and a lot of that water was actually spilled. And Holwell really felt that like this may have been a nice gesture, but the bottom line was that it did more harm than good. And as the evening went on, some of the men that were just exhausted just laid down on the floor and died quietly, while others made sort of these last desperate rushes for the windows. At one point, Hallwell pulled out his knife and intended to cut his own arteries and commit suicide, but he reconsidered. He wound up losing consciousness a short time later. And according to Holwell's account, 146 people were locked into that tiny room. And this account has been widely disputed. We'll talk about the numbers a little bit more in a bit. But even the reduced number of people that we're going to discuss that some modern scholarship has has sort of determined was more accurate, it still would have been an incredibly tight and, frankly, inhumane situation. And so when the door was opened the next morning, only 23 people were still alive. The rest had either died of suffocation or by having been crushed as multiple people tried to break the door open en masse. It took more than 20 minutes to clear the bodies away from the door to let the survivors of the 10 hours in the black hole get out. Holwell was found under a pile of bodies. Once those who were still alive were free of the cramped room, they were allowed to lie down in the grass at the front of the fort. And the handling of the dead is described a little bit differently from account to account. Uh, in some, the bodies were hastily buried in sort of a mass grave or a pit, and in others, they were merely thrown into an existing ditch. Holwell was taken before Siraj and tried to tell the Noab of the horrible ordeal that he had somehow managed to survive. But Siraj wasn't interested in the story. Instead, he wanted information about a rumored stronghold of riches that was somewhere in the fort. Holwell didn't know of any such thing, which really frustrated Siraj, and he ordered that Holwell be sent away. 
So at this point, John Holwell was taken with three other prisoners to Mershabad. And his health at this point was extremely poor. He was covered allegedly in boils. And after several weeks as sort of a prisoner of war, he was released on July 17th. And in part, this is because it was recognized that during his time working in Kolkata, he had treated the Indian population really quite well. And particularly, he had been very kind to those in need of medical attention and even kind of helping out in his role as a doctor for people that really he had no... um responsibility to take care of. It took five months for Holwell to get back to Great Britain, and he did so on a sloop called the Siren. During his time at sea, he penned his account of what had happened during those 10 hours trapped in a small room with dozens of people. Meanwhile, while he was traveling, word of these many deaths that had occurred at Fort William reached the East India Company's offices in Madras. And by October, a two-pronged military attack was launched against Siraj. Robert Clive led land forces that attacked Fort William, and Admiral Charles Watson led a fleet of ships to bombard the stronghold from the harbor. In January 1757, British forces regained control of the fort from the Nawab and his troops. Siraj al-Dawla was once again defeated by the British at the Battle of Plassey in June of 1757, and he was executed. This is often cited as a major turning point in the history of India as it marked the true establishment of British power there. So before we get to some of the discrepancies in these stories that were told and and Holwell's account versus what was the realistic numbers, uh, we're going to have another brief word from a great sponsor. So after the horrors of the Black Hole incident were revealed to the public... The story was actually used to bolster anti-Indian sentiment in Britain. It was touted as what was obviously an example of how primitive and savage people of other lands were when they didn't have sensible leadership from Great Britain. And in effect, it became this piece of pro-empire propaganda. Never mind the fact that, you know, this British company had come in and taken over a city in another country. Clearly, that city needed it, according to the point of view that was put forth by people who really wanted to use this story to benefit their interests. No one had any strong desire at this point either to question Holwell's details in the matter or verify any of his numbers because they were too busy focusing on getting revenge. In the 20th century, the details of Holwell's account have really been called into question. In 1915, J.H. Little, a schoolmaster from Britain, noted a number of discrepancies in Holwell's description of the event and really discredited his version of the story. Yeah, there were just a lot of little things that when you go back and look at the the details and the records, there are a lot of things that just don't quite add up. Um, and again, we've talked about before how, one, memory is fallible, incredibly fallible, and two, particularly, you know, in a, a post-trauma situation, some things can get really warped and it's it just happens naturally. So I don't want to paint it like people think Holwell was just being a big fibber. He just was wrong about some of the details. Um, additionally, another author and professor, Brijan Gupta, conducted his own research into the matter in the 1950s. And he used, uh, again, records and some calculations to determine that the real number of men put into the black hole was less than half of what was reported by Holwell, probably uh, 64. And the number of survivors, however, was very similar. 
Uh, Gupta puts it at 21 versus Holwell's account of 23. So the proportion of survivors was actually much higher than had been believed for more than 150 years up to that point. That's really a huge number of people to be in a space that size in that level of heat, though. Yeah, even at half of what Holwell reported, it's still a horrific situation for people to be in. Gupta's research revealed that all accounts that had been given about the night of June 20th, 1756, were linked back to Holwell. So in other words, none of them was given independently without his influence. Which is, again, sort of natural. These people all knew each other and had been through this traumatic event, but it is believed that Holwell may have kind of helped bolster his own story in talking about it with other people, the way people socialize and they'll go, do you remember when that thing happened? And it was like this and their kind of collective recollection got a little warpy. Uh, And in addition to this discrepancy in numbers, these later examiners of the events also indicate uh, through their research that Nawad Siraj al-Dawla actually did not order this cruel incarceration of the prisoners. He was in fact likely completely unaware of it until after the fact. So even when, Holwell was brought before him the next morning and was trying to explain what had happened. The Siraj wasn't like, oh, yeah, a bunch of people died. That's great. Whatever. Where, where's where's the gold and the rubies? He really had no idea what had taken place the night before. So you might think that John Z. Holwell would have never wanted to return to Kolkata, but in fact, he did just that in 1759. He was named governor in 1760, but disagreements with the East India Company's board of directors led him to resign just a few months later. And during his time as governor, Holwell erected a monument near the site of the Black Hole in memory of the people that had died there. Although this monument was pulled down for reasons unknown in 1821. And after his resignation, he once again returned home to Britain and he retired there. He spent the rest of his years in Pinner, where he died in late 1798. There's an obelisk memorial in Kolkata, although it's not in the location of the black hole. It was originally erected in 1902 at the actual black hole site, but it was moved to the grounds of St. John's Church, which was built by the East India Company in the 1940s. Yeah, that church had been there since, I think, the 1700s. So uh, after the many deaths, by any accounting, whether you take the amended uh numbers or not, um, in the black hole, this event was still used as a cautionary tale about lack of aeration in closed spaces. And considering that the space in the black hole was somewhere around 300 square feet or 28 square meters, and that it was very hot in the space with little air circulation, it, it was just an obvious recipe for disaster, but it wasn't something that had been thought of in that way prior to this event. If the prisoners had stayed absolutely perfectly still, more of them might have survived. But there still would have likely been quite a few deaths just because of the extreme heat and the dehydration. And of course, those who died from being crushed and suffocated during the attempt to break down the door would have been spared as well. Yeah, but we just don't know. I mean, it's kind of like the hot car situation, except it's like putting dozens of people in a slightly larger hot car. But that's basically what we're talking about. So I know um, in reading some accounts of it or some people uh, talking about it online, they're like, how could all those people die so quickly? It just didn't. They're in a cell. There were windows. And it's like, oh, no, no. Like we're, we're talking about really actually horrific conditions. Um, so that is the rather jarring and horrible story of the black hole of Col- 
Calcutta or Kolkata, if you use the modern pronunciation or the accurate pronunciation, I should say. Uh, it's a little bit of a downer, but it's uh, pretty fascinating. And it does make you think about how sort of simple negligence can really cause some awful moments in history. Yeah, the foul room at <laughs> my first job was definitely not that horrifying. It was just a dark room in an attic that was not air conditioned and full of looming boxes of files, which can also be dangerous, but not that dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And it is an interesting one uh, because when you read historians discussing this issue today, there really is sort of this sense that at no point was anybody thinking like, oh, we will shove all these people in here to die they just were not considering how lethal the environment was. So, it, again, it's just through more negligence than, like, intent, even. It's very horrifying. I can't imagine what an awful situation that would be. But that is the story of the black hole. It's a completely different context, but it reminds me of stories now of people who are trying to cross a border, sometimes because they are fleeing atrocities in their own country. Mm-hmm who wind up suffocating in, like, the backs of trucks and under seats in cars and stuff like that because it's just so hot, which is, a like, a horror in a whole different way. Yeah. Uh, so we are going to shift gears now and go to listener mail, which is not about people suffocating, thank goodness. It's much happier listener mail. It is. This is from our listener, Anna. And she says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I am a new listener to your podcast for a little over six months, but I've been binge listening to make up for lost time. I really love how you hit so many different topics and you always keep it interesting. I recently went on a trip to China, so I listened to all of your China-related podcasts before I left, and I considered it studying. Uh, she says, I was listening today to your Virginia Apgar podcast. Very nicely done. And I was amused, along with you, that a huge breakthrough in medicine came from the simple concept of, look at the baby. I wish I could tell you that concept has since been fully grasped, but it hasn't. I work as a nurse in a large pediatric ICU. There are always lots of monitors, wires, bells, and whistles attached to our patients, and they do not always cooperate as they should. They alarm when nothing is wrong or vice versa. The nurse that trained me used to say, quote, These monitors tell me nothing except that I need to look at my patient. At times, it has even led to arguments with doctors. I once had a resident refuse to discharge a patient that was all better and ready to go home with a family very excited to leave the hospital. He said it was because the patient had unstable heart rhythms overnight. I had heard nothing of this from the night nurse, so he had to show me where he was talking about on the monitor screen. I assured him that those monitor irregularities were from someone patting the baby, but he would not believe me. I had to have him watch the monitor while I went over and patted the baby, reproducing the unstable heart rhythms to convince him. And the baby and his very relieved parents were happy to go home later that day. All that to say, we may have technology out the wazoo, but one still has to look at the baby. I feel like that should be a shirt now. (laughs) I do too. Look at the baby. Uh, we should get on that. And we also need a moon beavers, a lunar beaver shirt. Right? Yeah, I've been working on a lunar beavers one. I just haven't got it where I want it. But I feel like there was. Oh, oh, there was the one that I want that says mispronunciating since 2008. <laughs> we'll do it. Uh, Anna goes on to say, I know you guys like to hear what people do while they listen to your podcast. I make cakes. I'm only a part time nurse and I now have my own custom cake design studio called Save Your Fork. I appreciate you guys keeping me company for long hours in the bakery. 
I emailed Anna back, but oh my goodness, the cakes she makes are art. They're so incredibly beautiful. They're so good. She does everything from like sort of fun, whimsical stuff to just crazy, elegant, beautiful things. I'm envious of her skill and completely wowed by it. I am sad she does not live in a location (laughs) where I can be like, hey, I have a thing coming up. Yeah. Oh, those are some good looking cakes. Uh, She has a beautiful gallery. Uh, We will ask her if it's cool if we link to her gallery in maybe our show notes because you guys will want to see these gorgeous, gorgeous cakes. Uh, So if you would like to write to us, you can do so. That is at historypodcast at houseofworks.com. We're also at facebook.com slash mistinhistory on Twitter at mistinhistory at pinterest.com slash mistinhistory at mistinhistory.tumblr.com. And you can visit us and get shirts and we will... Try to make good on some of those we just talked about at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com so you can get those crazy designs on your shirts or bags or mugs or phone cases or what have you. If you would like to do some research on your own, you can visit our parent site, which is House of Works. Search for almost any topic your mind can conjure, and there's almost surely something covering it. Or you can visit us online at mistinhistory.com, where we have all of our show notes for any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on together. You can do that and a whole lot more at, again, both our parent site, houseofworks.com, and at our site, mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.